we're back. Hey everyone, welcome welcome to Giant Steps 2024, brand new, new and better, better than ever. But man, we haven't been we haven't been on here for uh, since I guess Thanksgiving when we did that little eight minute blurb that we did. That's right. So we've had a little bit of rest, a little bit of holiday, a lot of sickness. Have you been sick? You've been sick a lot. Man, we were sick. I was sick. I haven't been sick twice in two weeks and like 10 years but i got it on new year's uh eve <laughs> new year's day and then i got it again last sunday after church and man i'm still still not feeling the best so hey let's let's introduce our friend matt G- give him give him the introduction this is, absolutely this is my buddy matt foreman rudy and um he's the he's the man the myth the legend that that wrote co-wrote the uh, angel of the lord book with me so that's Brought him on tonight so we can talk. That's about awesome. That. It's good to have you, Matt. Thank you for thank you for uh, coming on Great and to be talking with you to guys. us, killing a little bit yeah, of time with us. I'm, I'm glad to lurk in the background with with Doug on the Angel of the Lord stuff. So fantastic, <laughs> fantastic. Um, so you brought up a second ago. You brought up the uh, the Thanksgiving blurb that we did the the short the short episode, which by the way the was short. very very well received. Just in case. Oh, you that's know. good. Oh yeah, <laughs> no, a lot, lot, lot of people commenting on it, but. Um, I don't know if you ever caught on to this. I think you did. Actually, I know that you did. Um, did you see, you know, on the on the Facebook, I mean, on the Facebook, I'm sorry, on the YouTube thumbnail for the video, you know, I had right. this, you know, this thing with the sword and all over the book and whatever. Um, but you, did you see the thumbnail? You did see the thumbnail for the podcast, right? For the audio podcast. Because we never uh, talked about you know, this. I, I don't know that I actually ever did. It was okay. you dressed as a pilgrim. Oh yeah, I saw that. Well, you told me to. You told me to take these ridiculous pictures, and so that's what I did. And I send it over to you, and then it goes right up onto that thing. So, but I thought it looked awesome, dude. You know, back to your 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 pilgrim heritage. You know, my pilgrim heritage. Me and Grandpa Brewster. That's right, Matt. Did you know that uh, that William Brewster? I think I might have told you this when we when we stayed with you guys out there all those years ago. William Brewster. I didn't remember Mayflower the name. But I remember you had great, some great, 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 whatever, there, grandfather. Yeah. So, so did you like wear yeah, like so a, the, a Geneva the pastor gown of picture the or something like that? Yeah. <laughs> right. No, not quite a Geneva gown. No, I put him, I put him in a, gosh, I don't even know what the, I'll, I'll send you a copy of it. It's, it's pretty funny, but I thought it was fantastic. Of anybody I know I who would great. actually own the Geneva so. gown, like just for the sake of having one, it would be Doug. <laughs> Only for the sake of having one. Only for the sake of having one. That's right. <laughs> Um, you guys have been cold over there, man. We have been, I think the whole country has been cold, but yeah, we, we I mean were, the extreme ooh, cold. We that... got down to 15, 15 below probably, which is pretty unusual for us. And so there's a place that's, uh, two, just a little over two hours north of me in just Southern Wyoming. Hottest I've ever been in my life was in this little town called Lingo, Wyoming. It was my, my uncle and cousins lived there. And this was, I think, graduation year, 1988, helping them move out. It might have been 1990. It was 1990. And um, <clears throat> middle of July, got up to like 115 degrees, maybe 116. I mean, I've been to Mexico in the summer, and it didn't get that hot. Brownsville. Well, the coldest I've ever been, same place. <laughs> and it was six months later, and it was 48 below Good zero. <laughs> I mean, that's almost, that's like, it's like 200 that's degrees like, different. That's the cold that makes, it, makes it hurt to breathe, man, you know? Yeah, so when we when we got cold here this week, they were having wind chills that were near 50 below. Unbelievable. We're, about in, you, we're in Philly. You, um, it's actually been mild until the last last couple of weeks. And yeah, it's it's turned cold uh, this last week. We 
we uh, we have are projected to get another six to eight inches of snow tomorrow. So I have a I have an interesting habit of leaving town <laughs> when I travel unprepared for weather. I went to see Doug the first time that I no I'm sorry the second time that I went to meet Doug. I went out there in April and I'm thinking, hey, you know, I've already planted my garden here. Surely everything is fine over there. So I wore, you know, just a, a shirt. I get there and it's snowing, you know. So oh, yeah. I'm, I'm scurrying through Walmart trying to see what I can find. Of course, all the summer closes out now, you know. Well, the same thing happened to me in Philly. We're going to Philly, you know. I left here. I left Charlotte, North Carolina. And I looked at, you know, I looked at the temperature when I left. And it was, you know, 29 degrees, 30 degrees. And I thought, well, what I'm wearing now, Philly's 12 is there, I mean, it's below freezing. Is there really that much of a difference? Twenty nine, twelve. There is a difference. There is a big, big difference. And then you add the wind downtown Philly. So, yeah. So it's a it's a bad habit of mine. But um, yeah, it's been cold the whole whatever, country. Whatever you do, don't ever take your family in a car and go from northern Minnesota to Colorado when it's forty eight below zero when you start out. Because I did that over over one Christmas coming back. And I tell you, the temperature rose 78 degrees, and when I got to Denver, it was still below freezing. <laughs> you, guys, you guys hear about all the all the Teslas that have been uh, stuck and, in Chicago in the last week, you know, because they can't, they oh, can't yeah. charge the batteries. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You're out, of, out, of, out of battery, game over. <laughs> the best part of this is that I got, I think I got eight miles to the gallon. I could watch the needle just going down like this as I'm driving the car. So Bad at that point, idea. At that, at that point, it becomes not miles to the gallon, but gallons to the mile, right? Exactly. <laughs> well, fellas, so so as you told um, as you told the the audience coming in, you guys wrote a book together, and um, you know I'm a I'm a big fan of all your writing. That's actually how you and I met because of one of your books that turned into a massive project that is actually still going on. You know, and in in, in, a, in yeah. a derivative way, but it is. So tell me before we jump into the into the meat of the interview of what we're going to talk about. Tell me a little bit about you guys, about your your friendship, your dynamic. How did the book come about? And uh, let's let's start there. Well, I can tell you a little bit about our friendship. Matt and I met. Must have been. I think yeah. it was probably two thousand and three. Yeah. At the uh, Carlisle GA, maybe the next year in in Atlanta, but I think it was probably there for our uh, our association of churches that we were part of. And um, I was the youngest. <laughs> pastor in the network except for matt and he was younger <laughs> so we kind of bonded a little bit over that and we've been buddies and shared some really good times and some really hard times with with uh the networks that we've been part of and and i think it was really during the hard times that for whatever reason this is how i remember it and i'm really curious to hear matt how you remember this whole thing going down with the book but i just remember some somehow started to talk to you about divine counsel stuff angel of the lord and and um, it took a while for that to kind of sink in and figure out what I was even talking about. But at some point in time, I think you're probably the one who came to me and said, we need to do a book. So what are your and, and you have a steel trap memory, man. Like you are. It's unbelievable. I never seen anything like it. So you will remember truthfully, whereas <laughs> I just make things up when I think about the. Past. Yeah, well, what I what I remember, it must have been around like 2012, 2013, probably 2013. I was preaching in Exodus and uh and you were preaching in genesis and there we were on a committee together for our association of churches so we were kind of regularly kind of palling around talking about stuff 
And, um, you know, I, I had a, a Christ-centered hermeneutic when it comes to the Old Testament, you know, that, that came from seminary training, theological background, kind of a conviction that you should, you should read the Old Testament as Christian scripture. But in my mind, that was basically more of a hermeneutics thing. You know, you're you're looking for the, the the redemptive connections. You're you're seeing prophecy and typology, and it was really while preaching through Exodus, probably coming to the the key uh, text of Exodus 23, the the end of the Sinai covenant and this promise of the angel of God's presence to go with the people. And I, I remember Doug and I kind of talking and comparing notes. And he'd, he'd preached Exodus in the past. He was preaching Genesis. And we were talking about these angel of the Lord passages. And um, back and forth, Doug, Doug sent me, you know, I probably some, some articles on uh, from Michael Heiser or uh, I think Daniel Boyarin's article on kind of uh, Jewish Godhead, pre-Christian Jewish conceptions of God, and really just realizing that the idea of, of Christ being actually present in the Old Testament was uh, was just mind-boggling and and way more prevalent than anything I'd ever I'd ever grasped before. And so somewhere along in there, I, I remember going up to uh, Westminster Theological Seminary, where I went to school. It's about 45 minutes from me going to their library and just looking for resources on the angel of the Lord and kind of being astounded that there was very, very little from an evangelical kind of Bible-believing conservative perspective it, going back more than 100 years. Uh, I, we found some stuff since then, but like, you know, really, really no focused treatment on the angel of the Lord and Jesus' real presence in the Old Testament. And, uh, uh, you know, the only thing, the only people who were writing about it, and even like Jewish conceptions of the Godhead, were, you know, liberal progressives who kind of took an evolutionary theory of religion. So they saw this as, as part of, um, you know, a poly, you know, Jewish polytheism is where they went with, with it in their, their discussions. And yet, realizing you know there there's a there's a huge tradition going back way before this, of you know uh, but you know Bible believing scholarship, Bible believers who who made these connections, and so that's probably when when I went to Doug and said, hey, you and I should write a book about this because nobody else is writing about it. Um, and uh, so at some point, I I preached a sermon series. That that's what pastors do, you know when. When you want to take some time to study something deeper, you kind of work it into your uh, regular church schedule, so you have time to look into it. Exactly. That's right. That's what Multi you got to do. Multitasking. I, I did a sermon series on it. There's a lot of that I would do differently now, but that kind of got me started. And then in 2017, I took a sabbatical um, from from my my church and uh, and really started kind of I wrote. I think I wrote an, like an initial introduction to the book and sent it to Doug and said, hey, let's get started. Here's an introduction. And so then Doug said, oh, this looks great. Um, I'll take the Genesis stuff. You take the Exodus stuff, and then we'll go from there. 
and it kind of you know then we kind of started working back and forth on on things yeah i had never collaborated with anyone on a on a book before and i was kind of nervous about how it would work out but i thought it worked out really really well and and we ended up yeah. writing probably and there were certain chapters that we said book, well, I, you know why don't you write this one and i'll write this one and then there were kind of and then we'd kind of go come in behind and add in stuff and observations and then there were some chapters we ended up kind of just collaborating for the whole chapter yep that's really cool that's and it's really it's not a given as a songwriter myself it's not a given to find uh even even when you have a common vision it's not always easy to find somebody that you can pull that kind of a creative collaboration with you know so yeah so kudos to you guys that's that's really cool so by the by the way i should tell you guys both because neither one of you knows this about the other but uh, matt rudy is like guitar stud of the universe all over christian music for 30 years and matt is piano stud of the universe rudy oh man that's awesome cut his own album and and writes music and hymns and stuff so you guys would actually have quite a bit do you of have, do you in have any, common in terms of that stuff. do you have any stuff on the socials at all or um i i, I have an album here? that's on like you know amazon apple music things like that oh good well t- tell, tell me real real quick tell me a little sure, bit about it we'll put it up it, here it's basically it an album of retuned the, hymns the um kind of old hymns to put, put to new music and it's called nice. Ecclesia E K K L E S I A Hymns, Volume One. I haven't. I've never done a Volume Two, but I plan to. Yeah. Um, so it's just a bunch of uh, <laughs> you know old good theology hymns I wrote, rewrote tunes to. So, brother, you are talking my language. I am. Um, I am. I've, I've told Doug many times. I am a. I'm a reluctant charismatic. You know, um, but I grew up a Southern Baptist. <clears throat> you know, in my, my young age. And so I've got all that stuff in there in, in the back of my head. And, and, um, that's good music, man. I am, I am a sucker for, I like the rock and roll stuff. I love, you know, I'm a, I grew up on Petra and Striper and blah, blah, blah. I play guitar, but man, like I'm, I'm, I'm I've got that soft side to me too. I remember during my, I, I went through a divorce in 2005 it was a mess. And I went, I went back to lick my wounds at my parents' house in, in Florida, in Miami at the time. And they, you know, they have a piano at home and I used to sit and I, I play at the piano. I don't, I'm not a piano player, but I play at the piano block, basically block chords, you know, and, and, you know, the, the yeah. Nashville number system. But, um, but I would sit there, I would sit there for hours, literally for hours. I was just in this, in, in the right state of mind for it. Um, and it's amazing it's amazing how healing and how how much mm-hmm. peace those old hymns bring you know there's something very very special about it so so yeah. everybody go buy this record Please, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I definitely will give it a we'll check it out yeah absolutely <laughs> well that's great to know that's fantastic and we were talking about session players before you got on here matt and did you have yeah, session yeah. players that came on and, and I, helped i've got a, i've them? got a couple people in my church yeah, who are professional remember, remember you telling me uh, musicians my one of my good buddies is a professional drummer and uh plays um does uh stuff for universities all over philadelphia and then plays for a number of groups and so uh he's multi-talented and yeah he actually he actually runs his own studio here that's fantastic 
so give me give me a quick give me a quick track listing of, of what I can expect to find on this record. Oh, praise the Savior the now and ever. Jesus sinners does receive. I lay my sins on Jesus. Uh, there's there's a whole host of them. Yeah. Yeah. Those are the deep cuts, man. Yeah. <laughs> Those are the deep cuts. The deep cuts in the hymn book. <laughs> they're not they're not the top, the top 40 stuff that's awesome that's really cool so um all right so let's get into it man let's get into the yeah let's into dive into this so matt there's a quote that we kind of have it near the beginning of our book and it's from uh one of one of both both of our favorite biblical theologians gerhardus voss and he says of the angel of the lord that he's the most important and characteristic form of revelation in the patriarchal period and which when i first came across that quote i was like blown away no, i'd never heard anybody say that about the angel of the lord so i think it's going to be fun because how often does an <laughs> author get to interview the author yeah exactly and it not be the same author right so like i i, I kind of know a bunch of the answers already but to hear you kind of talk about them and maybe we can work this out together a little bit and get the best out for the audience of what they can expect. So who in the world is the angel of the Lord? Yeah. Why in the world is this topic um, matter? So what Voss just, just said there in that quote, uh, throughout the, uh, the Old Testament, you see this, uh, this angel appear who's spoken of in terms that seem to be more than just an angel. Um, you know, there's, you know, the word angel, of course, just means messenger. And it can be used for human messengers, but as the the Bible progresses and increasingly is used for divine supernatural beings, and there there are obviously a multitude of the heavenly hosts, but there is this this one figure who it receives worship like Yahweh, uh, is called by the name of Yahweh, speaks with the authority of Yahweh, and yet is said to be sent from from God, sent from Yahweh. And he, he receives this worship, even though we know other angels of the Bible, like the angel in Revelation says, you must not worship worship me. Most other angels would, would turn that aside. And so, um, you know, we we believe that the Bible is Christian scripture. Uh, we believe that the that the God of the New Testament is the God of the Old Testament and he he inspired it all. And his revelation is certainly progressive. There's certainly greater clarity in the New Testament, but to say there's clear clarity in the New Testament doesn't mean that there's not revelation in the Old Testament. And and so you see you see this figure, and you begin right. to look into um, how often he appears, and and we argue it he appears more often than people even realize because he's appearing under different titles. Um, and from a New Testament perspective, if you have a a being who is sent from God, who receives worship as God, speaks with the authority of God, um, acts to to reveal God. Who who else would we interpret this to be? Then, um, you know that we 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 know from from the New Testament that God is a has always been a Trinity. That there's a Father, a Son, and the Holy Spirit, and um, you know you realize from Christian history that this has been interpreted as a revelation of the Trinity in the Old Testament. Um, so, and I, you know, I think we would say too that the more you you look into the data, 
you realize this is how the, the New Testament understood it. These are the titles that the New Testament gives to Jesus are these titles that appear in the Old Testament associated with the angel of the Lord. So this was what the New Testament understood, that Jesus was not just predicted, but he was there, he was active. Um, Abraham met with him. Moses met with him. Uh, Jesus rescued people out of the land of Egypt, Jude verse 8 says. Um, and, and then you go into church history and you realize the early church all believed that Jesus was there, present and active in the Old Testament to be identified with the angel of the Lord. And that's been the consistent understanding of church history up until the last couple hundred years. And so there's an overwhelming kind of a Christian tradition and interpretive um, synthesis that believes that that this is the this is what the way we're to understand uh, our Bibles. The the story that I always take people to to say why why is this relevant? How does this impact real Christians today? Other than the fact that Jesus wants us to understand the Old Testament, Jesus wants us to see Himself in the Old Testament. Um, I always mention the story of Genesis 22 which is the story of the binding of Isaac and the sacrifice mm -hmm. of Isaac. And when you realize in the middle of the story that it's the angel of the Lord who calls to Abraham from heaven and says, do not lay your hand on the boy. I see that you've not withheld your only son from me. And, and therefore I, I will bless you. And I, you know, um, it's the angel of the Lord who says that to him. And when you realize that, we are to we are intended to to see that as the second person of the Trinity speaking. Suddenly, that adds a whole layer to the meaning of that story that that you would not see otherwise. That this was Jesus Himself, the person telling Abraham, "It's not going to be your son who's going to be sacrificed." Um, how how can you not worship and and react to that? You know and have that be heartwarming to you as a Christian. Absolutely. All the more so knowing the mountain that it took on is the very mountain yeah, that Jesus so many put your die on. In that story. That's amazing. I mean, what yeah. what are the what are the yeah. odds of that, right? Yeah, that's amazing. You know, Rudy, uh, I people want me to come on their shows, talk about Nephilim all the time, and I'm happy to do it because it's a it's a fun topic, and and I know that a lot of people are interested in it. But of all of all the topics that I've written on. This is the one that's the most important to me for yeah. a couple of reasons, because uh, first of all, this this um, topic um, connects the two testaments. And we we're living in such a day that it, and I've known people that are like this, that like the Old Testament God is this mean, horrible, tyrant, um, military God who wants to kill everybody. And the New Testament God is this loving hippie, wears Birkenstock sandals, <laughs> walks around you know, with tie dye shirts on. Right. And, you know, it's created, it's created a real, almost, almost heresy in terms of how we think about who God is. Yeah. And, and the angel of the Lord bridges that. Um, and it does so in the second way that's so important is because it's Christ centered and he's the, he's the, he's the mediator between God and man. And he always has been since the very beginning. And if, if we want to know anything about salvation at all, we have to go to Christ. And, so if all we know about Christ is starting in the womb of the Virgin, that's wonderful, and it's and it is enough to be saved. But you're missing so much. 
when you realize that 75% of your Bible also contains them and you never thought that it did. Well, and, and that's the thing. And you've heard me say this several times now. You've heard me say it on other podcasts that the one thing when we got into this whole topic of the Nephilim and the Watchers, the big, not I don't want to say it was a revelation because I guess, I guess I've always known it, but just it's been cemented into me what a... Um, what a thread! What a what an ongoing thread of the of the broader picture it all is, and you can stop along the way to on these on these tangents and 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 focus in on one particular aspect of it. This is a vital one to even to even that conversation. I was um, I read one of these goofy articles today that you know we randomly get, and it said you know they have uh, they have I guess this new part you know derivative work of star wars a new a new a new star wars coming out with the first the first female director you know they proudly they're waving that flag big time and uh and so but it was saying you know this one is poised to go in a in a completely new direction i'm thinking to myself these guys just don't learn you know they want to they want to they want to go completely <laughs> bankrupt you know um yep. but but my point in saying that is it, when you look at the and i'm showing my inner nerd a little bit here but when you look at the the broad you know star wars universe you can stop, and, and they do all the time, stop and camp here, and let's talk about this character and his whole entire backstory. How much more is it important in this, in this story, this stream of divine consciousness that we are, um, where it's all so interconnected? Yeah, there's a reason why um, in Mike Heiser's book, this is, I mean, Heiser's book is the fountain for both the Nephilim book and the Angel of the Lord book, really. And it's because it, both of these topics are found in that book on the unseen right. realm. And it's like, well, they're definitely connected and you just got to figure out how. And all, all we've done in, in this book is just extrapolate what he put into maybe three chapters and put it into pretty much as exhaustive of a, of a book as we could. You know, the, the organization of the book, Matt, we thought a lot about and we really brought, broke it down into um, three, three sections. So we, we wanted to talk about a biblical theology first and really go from, I guess, Genesis to Revelation, really, about the angel um, and think about that. But then we also added what you brought up earlier, the historical stuff, the church father stuff, um, the Protestant stuff, you know, and, and how we have traditionally seen him. And then we also wanted to add some really theological questions. We didn't go take a deep dive into systematics with the angel, but we wanted to raise some questions about how the angel of the Lord might impact some of our systematic theology. So can you talk a little bit about why you think that, that it matters yeah. how we put the book together? Um, I, well, first of all, let's, let's take the first section of that, which is the biblical section. We, we wanted to say, uh, we think it's important to, to create a real exegetical case um, and, and be able to show from the text itself that you know this is not just you know some type of high level eisegesis or wishful thinking this is is something that you can uh, you can start to see in the text itself you know if you you know bible interpreters will tell you that you know there's there's rules for interpretation um the that the bible interprets itself itself interpreting so there are less clear passages and there are more clear passages and you can you can, in understanding the more clear passages, go back to the unclear passages and say, you take this passage by itself, 
and it may not be completely clear exactly what it's talking about, but based on these other passages put together, now you can say there's a basis to go back and say, no, then we, we can say this more definitively. And so what we try to do is build a case um, looking, you know, beginning in Genesis, going to Exodus, and then going through these major titles in the Old Testament and and putting them together, the the, the weight of evidence becomes overwhelming. Um, and and you, you start to say, well, hey, you know, you know, somebody could take one one section of what we've written and say, well, so, well, maybe that seems maybe a little speculative. But then you add this and you add this and you add this passage and you add this passage. And then it, it's like, how, how can you uh, how can you argue against it? It becomes becomes overwhelming. Um, so, you know, I, th- I think that was real important to build that case, to study the kind of the progression of the revelation and uh, even into the New Testament to, to see how these things connect. Um, so and then with that basis to say we're we're not the first people who've seen this. We may be the first people who are writing about it in this depth in a while. Um, but let's actually go back and and say there some of the things we're talking about here predates Christianity. There's Jewish exegetes that saw some of these things and were wrestling with um, multiple Yahweh's in the Old Testament. Uh, and then you come into the New Testament era and you go to the church fathers and you go to somebody like Justin Martyr, you know, writing to his, his friend, you know, his Jewish friend, Pliny. Uh, yeah, wasn't that, is that, the, that's the right letter, right? Justin Martyr's Trifo. letter to Pliny. Um, and, sorry, sorry, Trifo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The You're Trifo. Right. Yeah. Trifo. Pliny is the elder, yeah. And yeah. saying... We're not saying anything different than your Jewish exegetes have said. And look, look, this is what they're saying. We're looking at this. How, how can this be anything other than than Christ? And then that interpretive tradition fall, you know, f- flows all the way up to the time of the Reformation. Um, and I, I think that that becomes over, you know, just completely compelling. And then you know we end with okay, so what does this mean for for today? Uh, we think that there's aspects of theological discussion today that are missing some of these nuances. You know, there's there's a in certain circles there's been uh, Trinity controversies in the last eight years, um, and so many of those Trinity controversies controversies will focus on uh, you know aspects of the Godhead that they say only relate to the incarnation, and we're looking and saying, well, hey. If, if Christ was sent in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord and it speaks of him as being sent, that has implications for, for what you're saying. Uh, we're not you know, going uh, to be the, uh, the systematic theologians to make a, 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 a dogmatic conclusion about it, but we're saying this needs to be part of the discussion that is often being missed in those academic circles. Right. I came across a guy on uh, Facebook was talking about how um, the son, the sonship of the second person, the word of God, did not begin until the womb of the virgin. And the, the, and he goes, this is orthodoxy. And he says, anybody who thinks that the su- second person was the son in eternity past is a heretic. 
And it's like this is a perfect example of how absolutely ridiculous, biblically ridiculous that kind of why do is. why do people have to jump to the H word so quickly? <laughs> I, know, I know, I know, I <laughs> know. It's like it, you know, it's funny. <clears throat> we we have two uh, we have two appendices that came to my mind as you're talking about this. One from a fellow who's kind of made it his. Um, it's it's a very strange life goal, but it seems to be his life goal to make sure that everybody knows that every instance of the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is not the second person of the Trinity. Like, why would you want to do that, first of all? And then the second one is an appendix. We found a, a very ancient letter. Right? It's either late 2nd or early 3rd century that had never been translated into English. That's called the Letter to the Six Bishops. And we had our good buddy Michael Amati, a missionary who I want to have on the show at some point in time, um, translate it for us. And in that letter basically they're saying look here's this here's this rogue pastor who was going around claiming that the angel lord is not um the second person of the trinity and he goes and and they they say together as the six bishops no this is the received tradition that we have had since the apostles and anybody who says otherwise is not following the apostolic (laughs) it's reverse heresy i just think those are really interesting yeah (laughs) very interesting contrasts and both of them are raising the the H word, but, you know, when it comes to the person of Christ, you can see yeah. why things get so heated. Absolutely. And, and uh, would you say letters that were translated, I'm assuming you're talking about from ancient oh. Greek, correct? This uh, letter was in both a, both Latin, Latin and Latin Greek. Greek. That, that was one of the, the most exciting kind of stories we came across. Greek. I don't even remember how we came across it. You know, we, we at some point... I don't we, either. I'd found mentions of this guy, Pierre Alex, who was a 17th century French Huguenot writer who wrote this book, you know, The uh, Judgment of the Ancient Jewish Church Against the Unitarians. And Unitarianism was becoming a big thing in the late 17th century. And here's this guy who's a Semitic scholar, you know, amazing, you know, knowledge of ancient literature, who's going back and finding all these rabbinic sources and writing against the Unitarians basically by saying the ancient Jewish church was not Unitarian. Here's proof. Um, I, I want to say it was sometime in, in finding Pierre Alex as a resource that we came across some mention of this letter of six bishops that argues for Jesus in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord. And we're like, wow, that, work, that sounds awesome. Where could we find that? So... So we, we hunted for it forever, and the so only place we could it find it was and, in this Catholic we found it. Uh, mm-hmm. resource that was, it was you know, uh, two-sided, one in Latin and one in Greek. And we couldn't find it anywhere else translated into English. And we, it's like, this has been mentioned in a couple of places, but we can't find it in English anywhere. And so, you know, Doug and I kind of both knew enough Latin and Greek where we kind of flubbed our way through it and said, yeah, sort of. Going, figure this, out what this it sounds was like really important. Sort of. We need to do something about this. I, I'm imagining you guys like in catacombs with you know torches, like looking. Yeah, it's the internet catacombs, is what it is. <laughs> By the way, I published I published Peter Alex's book along with uh, Gerard de Gaulle's, who's another kind of one of these guys, and then John Owen as three three separate books and one volume. I've, I've never done a show on these guys. So most people don't even know that these book ex, books books exist. But I, re, I re, uh, 
kind of updated their English and put all kinds of footnotes in it so that you can understand the um, people they're referencing and whatever. And they're mind-blowing. They're absolutely mind-blowing geniuses. And they were two to 300 yeah. years yeah. ahead of their time on this topic. Pete, Mike, Michael Heiser had nothing on these guys, honestly. They, 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 they didn't have logos where they could do you know, cross searches. They just, they just had read it all. <laughs> Um, you know, we're, we're all cheating our way through things. Yeah. And these were the guys who knew what they were doing. Totally. Well, in our defense, they, they had a lot of less stimuli to yeah, compete for attention excuse, than we true. do now, you know? <laughs> so Matt, let's get into kind of the, um, the, uh, meat of the biblical part of the book. Now, um, and this is stuff that I really first learned from reading Mike's Unseen Realm book, his, his early version of that, the myth that is true. And that's where we really went to town and said, I think that we could really do a lot of work here on this. And that is this idea that um, people think that the angel of the Lord, he's only there if you see the title, the angel of the Lord. And so if you don't see the title, then you don't have the angel of the Lord there. However, what we find is that the angel of the Lord is actually called by all kinds of different words. He's called the name of God. He's called, as John famously puts in the first verse of his gospel, the, the word, word of absolutely. God. Now this, yeah, this is not this is not just a John Johannine thing that he made up. He's getting this from the Old Testament. It's a term for the angel of the Lord. Um, he's called the glory of God. He's called the arm of God or the right the right hand of God. Kind of military terms. And there's several others that we that we use he's he's even called Yahweh himself or just God sometimes so the, these become synonymous um, in, in parallelism sometimes you'll see God name or God word sometimes you'll see angel of the Lord and then just the Lord um, so take us through kind of some of those different titles how 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 can you if you were going to first introduce this concept to people and just introduce them to the names. Well, How would you go question. about doing that? Um, what, what I typically do is I, I begin with the, with the angel, angel of the Lord, because people are, they've heard of the angel of the Lord. They don't know quite what to do with them, but you, you take them through, I, I call it a journey of understanding the angel of the old, in the old Testament. So they, they know he appears, to Abraham, they know that he appears to to Moses at the burning bush. Um, Although a lot of people don't know that yeah, it's actually yeah. the angel Lord in um, the bush, which is really. But I usually I usually begin with the Exodus twenty three passage um, because uh, it because I think that's also one that people that's one that people are not as familiar with, um, and it's it's such a, a key text because it's. It's right at the very end of the Sinai Covenant. I actually call it the greatest promise of the Sinai Covenant. So coming out of the giving of the Ten Commandments and then these, you know, um, you know, civil ceremonial laws that he lays down, he he comes to the end of this covenant that God is making with them, and he promises them this angel. He says, "I'm going to send my angel before you." And he will guard you on the way and bring you to the place that I've prepared. You need to pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. For he will not forgive your transgressions, for my name is in him. 
And then he goes on and he starts to describe what, what he's going to do when he leads them to this promised land. And then the lines get real blurry in the, in the text because Yahweh starts, you know, this is God speaking to Moses and says, you know, I'm going to drive these nations out and Yahweh will do this for you and he will bless your bread and water and I will, uh, will, will, will do these things. And he starts moving back and forth between speaking in the first person and then the, the third person and the, the identity of these two get, get blurry. Um, and so, you know, introducing that idea and then taking them to a text like Isaiah 63. Um, and Isaiah 63 talks about the, the angel of the, of the presence, angel of the face who rescued the people out of the, out of the land of Egypt. Or Judges 2, where the angel of the Lord speaks to the people and he uses the same language as Exodus 23. Meaning, he, he's judging the people for not fulfilling the, what God had commanded them and uh, not, uh, not obeying his voice and making covenants with the people of the land, which he told them not to do. And it's all this language from Exodus 23 that he'd said the angel. And, uh, and then you go to Malachi 3. And Malachi 3 promises the, um, the, the, the uh, which is we, New Testament perspective is John, you know, John the Baptist, God will send my messenger and he will prepare the way before my face. And then the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the, even the angel of the covenant in whom you delight. Well, the angel of the covenant is this reference back to Exodus 23. So, Draw that, that storyline out for people and say, well, that, that really starts to connect some dots. Um, and then start going to the titles and saying, I, I always think the easiest one is the word of the Lord because people are familiar with that. Right. And, and they're, yeah, they're used to thinking <laughs> they've been told that John 1 is talking, you know, is referencing Greek philosophy and Logos philosophy. What they don't realize is that the Logos philosophy was actually coming from a Jew um, named Philo, and Philo was referencing the Old Testament. Um, and you have a verse like, mm -hmm. um, I think the easiest one I think of is uh, Zechariah chapter 3, or is it 3 or 4? Um, Could be 4 with the... Uh... The temple scene? Oh, it's, it's, yeah, Zechariah 4. So it uses this language in verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Now, we, that's language people are familiar with. That sounds like, you know, God's going to give a prophetic revelation to, to somebody. And so Zechariah's right. What's that? He's going to whisper in somebody's yeah. ear. It must be it must be a voice. He's going to whisper in somebody's you know, ear. The word of the Lord came to me saying, "The hands of mm -hmm. Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know that Yahweh of hosts has sent me to you." Um, when you stop there and you think about what that just said, the word of the Lord is speaking <laughs> to, to Zechariah and saying, "This is how you're going to know." that the Lord of hosts sent me to you, meaning the word of the Lord. So here's the word of the Lord speaking as sent from Yahweh, distinct from Yahweh. 
So this isn't just uh, the you know Yahweh whispering in his ear. This is a this is a person. So then you go from there to something like First Samuel uh, three, which is the you know the call of Samuel as a young boy, and uh, again you have all this word of the Lord language. But now it's word of the Lord language connected with a vision. Um, so, you know, 1 Samuel 3, 2 says, The word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. How, how is the word of the Lord of a vision? And then and there's all this vision things that runs through the chapter. And then through, as the story goes along, it's Yahweh calling to Samuel. And you think, well, it's just a voice. Um, and then you come down to verse. That's the one where it says also that Eli is yeah. like he's blind. He can't see anything. The priest of the. So like, why would you right. why would you tell me that he's blind? Yeah. Who cares? Yeah. Well, somehow that has that's a big deal in the story. Right. He can't see right. something. Which so you is come down to verse 10 and it says, the and the Lord the came Lord. and stood calling as at other times, meaning. This wasn't just a disembodied voice. There was an appearance there that's that's happening. All right, so you take that and you right. go all the way back to Genesis 15. And Genesis 15, everybody's familiar with Genesis. You know, people who know their, their story know this is the place where God kind of cuts a covenant with, with Abraham. But Genesis 15 uses this language. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I'm your shield, your reward shall be very great. We, we read that and we think, oh, it's just a voice. But it says he came to him in a vision. And then a few verses later, it says, um, uh, then he brought him outside, meaning the word of the Lord brought Abraham outside. Meaning there's some presence there leading him along. Okay, so you start to realize that this this is a title, the word of the Lord. He's a he's something sent from Yahweh, but it's speaking as Yahweh. Well, that sounds exactly like the angel of the Lord that we were just talking about a minute ago. And so it, it, this this title begins to take on, you know, to use a theological term, hypostatic properties. It's almost like a person. Um, well, then you take that title and then let's let me let's go to another title like the name of the lord or the glory of the lord or the face of the lord or the hand of the lord and you see all of these things are using the same kind of language and it 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 begins to become compelling that this is revealing uh, uh, the same kind of person a same kind of manifestation of yahweh sent from yahweh you know, I like the, um, uh, the the Matthew 15 one. I had just, uh, I had forgotten this until I went through it the other day again. And and verse 6, it says, He believed the Lord in it, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, this is a verse that Paul uses in Romans 4 and in Galatians 3 to talk yeah. about faith in Christ. But he's getting it straight out of Genesis 15, 6. Well, how could he justifiably do that unless... The Lord he's believing there is Christ, which is exactly what we're making the argument exactly. that 
that the word of the Lord is Christ. And so here you have Paul explicitly saying that Abraham believed Christ or believed in Christ, had faith in Christ, not in a promise of him to come, but in the actual person who he's standing there looking yeah. at the stars of the sky. Now that's, I mean, I never heard anything like this growing up. Nothing like this. And it just, it's, every time I think about it new again, it's just mind-blowing and it's so cool to see these connections that, for whatever reason, I, it maybe I just never made them or most of the people I knew never made them or whatever the case is. But here you have the angel of the Lord subject that is um, let me, able let, to Let me drop in a historical very, very here, clearly because this is a quote from Jonathan Edwards. People, people have heard the name Jonathan Edwards. Um, and we include this in, in the book. And Jonathan Edwards says, uh, as soon as man fell... Christ entered on his mediatorial work. Then it was that he began to execute the work and office of a mediator. Um, and, he, and he goes on, he's describing, basically saying that, that Christ became the one who stepped in to reveal God from the beginning. And later in this quote, he says, Therefore, uh, when we read in sacred history what God did from time to time toward his church and people, and how he revealed himself to them, we are to understand it especially of the second person of the Trinity. When we read of God appearing after the fall in some visible form or outward symbol of his presence, we are ordinarily, if not universally, to understand it of the second person of the Trinity. You know, he, he, here's a, a guy from history who's basically saying the, the, the same thing from these conclusions, that these, these appearances were the work of the second person of the Trinity. Now, we, we understand that whenever any one person of the Trinity is working, they're, they're all there. But there's, there's, there's usually one being kind of fronted. And, um, you know, I, we, that's what we have to ask ourselves. When we come across passages in the Old Testament, does God really just work in his unified essence, or does he work through his person? And so which one are the persons? Yeah, exactly. You know, one of these titles, one of these titles that um, I didn't bring up, but we have a chapter on is the, the title of the face or the presence. The, the Hebrew word is the penim. And you actually reminded me of it in that Malachi 3 quote because it uses that language. I find this one really interesting for a number of reasons, but one of them is that oftentimes in English translations, this word doesn't even get translated. And yet, it's a word that what we're, we're suggesting is, and we're not the only ones that have done it, is, is one of these words that is actually a, a title for Christ. Can you talk about, I'm curious, I don't know if you know if I've ever asked you this, but why do you suppose people, translators, find this a word that they don't need to translate? And why is this such an important idea, that, that the second person is the face yeah. or the presence I, mean, I, I think the simple God. answer is... It, it is a Hebrew idiom that means when when it says you know the the idiom lipani just means it certainly can can be translated me you know um, when uh, the 
the verse you mentioned, Malachi 3, that says, I will send my messenger and he will prepare the way. Our English translations say, prepare the way before me. And they're translating this phrase, lipani. Now, the literal meaning is before my face. And you go back to the Septuagint, and the Septuagint translates it before my face. Um, I don't think that people mean anything other, other than the fact, mean by anything other than they aren't familiar with it as a title. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly it. It's it's not. I'm not saying that there's kind of evil motives or intents. I just think that they are not understanding the importance of what this term actually is. You know, Paul says something along the lines of, "We we see um, we see the the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ," and he's now it's a Greek, um, but nevertheless the theological idea is identical to the presence or the face, the panim of the Hebrew. And yeah. he's not getting so that. So the, the key from the chapter Testament. on that is Exodus 33. Um, Which I made you write because it's so insanely uh, impossible to understand. Well, and, and the word, the word panim <laughs> or pane is all over Exodus 33. And it's, it's, it's very paradoxical. Um, so this is the chapter right after the, the golden calf and, and God is threatened that he's no longer going to send. He's no longer going to be with them. And so Moses intercedes for the people and says, no, no, don't send, send us. We, we, we don't want to go without you. Um, and the, in this chapter, there's all this language about Moses meeting with God in the tent of meeting face to face, panim to panim. Um, and then when Moses asks, there's there's so much detail we could go into here, but I don't want to spend the whole time on it. But, um, but Moses asks, you know, uh, you know, don't send us up from here if you don't go with us. And then God relents and says, okay, my 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 panim, my face will go with you. Um, and then uh, and then Moses says, well, please show me your glory. And and. Which is another, Which one, is of another one of the terms that is associated and, and glory with glory takes person. on hypostatic tendencies in the Old Testament. <laughs> um, so he says, show me your glory. Yes. And then God says, uh, no one can see my face and, and live. You'll die. Well, you just said he was meeting with Moses mm -hmm. face to face. Um, one of the things that I think you have to realize of the, 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 the Christophanies in Exodus is that Moses was meeting with the angel of the Lord in the glory cloud. So th throughout, the, the, throughout the Exodus, mm -hmm. the, the glory cloud will descend, and then it uses language of the angel in the glory cloud, or the Lord in the glory cloud. We... I mean, even at the burning bush, right, it's the same way. It's not just the unmediated angel the the angel is inside in the fire the, and then in the, fire, in, in the fire, journey in the right. wilderness when they leave mm -hmm. egypt the the pillar of cloud and fire is the glory cloud and the angel is within it and when moses would go into the tent of meeting it would say the the cloud would descend and then he would be meeting in the tent face to face but it's clouded and we would argue that the cloud is a is a manifestation of the spirit the, the Spirit and the Son are always working together in the, the, Holy Spirit, in the Old yeah. Testament. But there's a figure in the cloud who's the angel of the Lord. 
And when Moses asks to see your glory, he's asking, you know, he, he knows he's meeting with, with God, but he knows there's more to be seen. And so this, this language of face, you know, comes with a lot of mystery to it. And God's saying, you know, you cannot see my face um, and live. And, and yet, I, you know, God says, well, but I, but I will pass before you. I'll put you in the cleft of the rock. And then you come to the next chapter, chapter 34, and the Lord descends and stands with him there. And, the, and as the language says, it covers him with his hand. Well, hand is another title for the angel of the Lord. And then, and then the glory passes by and he lets Moses see his back. Well, pene, that word, is used so much in that chapter as having these, this mystery. How can God be seen and not seen? Um, why can you not see his face and yet you're seeing his face? Um, this is where I think I, I, the two uh, verses I've already mentioned, Isaiah 63 and Malachi 3, become really important. In Isaiah 63, I think it's verse 9, um, Isaiah is talking about the Exodus and says, you know, the um, uh, let me get it right. I don't want to miss, miss it because it's so important. Um, Isaiah 63, yeah, verse, verse 9, he says, In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them, he lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. So he's talking about the Exodus and saying, The angel of the Lord, angel of his presence, was the one who lifted them up out of the land of Egypt. Well, that word presence is the word pene, it's the word face. Well, what's the angel of the face? That phrase doesn't appear anywhere else in the Old Testament. But that word, pene, is so crucial in Exodus 33 for him meeting with the face and then not being able to see the face that you, you got to say this is what he's talking about. Um, it's the angel of the face. Well, then you go to Malachi 3.1. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before my face. And then the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the angel of the covenant in whom you delight. You could translate that before me, but you miss the Exodus connections. That this Pene is talking mm -hmm. about this, this being who, who reveals the face of God. And so Doug mentioned 2 Corinthians 4 where Paul says, you know, we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul's a scholar of the Old Testament. He knows exactly what he's saying. Um, Jesus is the one who is the face of God. Well, and that, that entire section of 2 Corinthians is about the the Old Covenant and the glory. You know, Paul uses the, the, um, the shining face of Moses that he has to cover his face because he's been talking to the the face. Uh, and so the whole context of it is exactly yeah. what we're talking about here in the <clears throat> Old Testament. And so he's not even just pulling that out. He's actually, it, it's actually a very logical, rational Old Testament yeah. conclusion. So put in a argument. plug, uh, Doug and I supposedly have an article coming out in April in the Westminster Theological Journal um, about 
those <laughs> passages. Um, and we're answering a guy who um, wrote an article in, in the Themelios Journal last year uh, where he, I think he gets re, he gets really confused on 2 Corinthians 4 and argues that 2 Corinthians 4 is saying he can't be the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament because Moses was veiling his face. And yet we're saying Moses' veiling of his face, was his veiling was representative of the Old Covenant. That Moses' fading glory that they didn't want him to see is what the problem was with the Old Covenant. And it's only in the New Testament with, the, with Jesus becoming flesh, if Moses wasn't able to see the glory of God, John, John uses the language, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the Father. John, John uses that language to say, there's something about the incarnation that enables us to see more of Jesus, more of the glory of God than we've ever seen before. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Let, let me let me. Which is ironic because he comes as one of us, and and so in in the, in clothed in human flesh, it's actually in in a weird sense it's less glorious, and yet the New Testament because is of what saying, it's he, more glorious. He does because he takes on humanity, and because of what he does taking on humanity, we see an aspect of God that we would have never seen otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, before you guys move on to the to the next term or or the or the next part of this, let me let me um, let me put something up for you guys for discussion. Going back to the to the passage in John where it says in the beginning was the word, in in Spanish and and I know that both of you guys when you go through through your seminary training and all that I'm sure and and for sport I'm sure at a hobby also, you guys you guys um, meander from. Um, well, every good pastor, I guess, from translation to translation, seeing different words, different um, different translations, you know, um, this terminology, that terminology. Um, and I don't know if, if, if either of you has ever come across this before. In Spanish, the equivalent of the of the King James in Spanish, it's the Reina Valera, right? That's that's that would be the equivalent of the King James. And the Reina Valera translation of John uh, the the, the passage in John says, literally translated to English, would say, in the beginning was the verb, like an action verb, was the verb, and the verb was with God, and the verb was God. And the verb is referring to I am, the I am verb. So mm -hmm. to, your, to your knowledge, um, is there anything, any of the English translations that have a terminology that, that, comes close to saying that because because if it isn't that that right there also that actually i feel reinforces what you're saying if that translation is saying for for whatever the the word is in english the the i'm, I'm assuming that it came from the latin if it's if it's in spanish that it came directly from the latin yeah that's where it's coming from in principo erat verbum there you go et verbum so we get our English word verb from that word. However, I believe that the Latin for that actually means word. So I think that the Spanish is probably, we're, we're losing something in translation there. There's no other English, English translation that yeah, uses Yeah, I don't, I don't know that like the semantic domain of verb in English is the same. Um, 
Right, exactly. It's because Spanish is is being closer so in, to the Latin at that in, point in Spanish, than what English is. With but the what's word interesting word. about it, though, what's I was going to say, in, in Spanish is is the semantic yeah. domain of the of the word verb. It just include the word word. <laughs> no, um, no, it doesn't. In fact, um, in in fact, in fact, when in fact the the, I mean, I and I I know this from from you know my few years before being an English speaker um, many, many years ago, that that, that that passage is always referenced to and tied into um, the I am, that the, the, actually actually at face mm -hmm. value as a verb. Now, mind you, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm telling you this from, you know, from the, the, the pew sitter, you know, from the guy listening to the messages, not as the, not as the, um, Definitely not in in the same manner that you guys would be that you guys would be studying. So they're the making an explicit. So I'm interested to go and look now. Connection there. with that verse in John one one to Exodus three, and the I am, which I I would argue is definitely there, but it's not the 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 correspondence is uh, you know would not be yeah it's almost almost accidental. accidentally. <laughs> Yeah. What's interesting is that the the Jewish targums will often add in the word "word" in ways that the that the original Hebrew doesn't, and so there'll be passages like um, I'm I'm, cur I'm actually curious right now if it does it in Exodus three. Um, yeah, the one I'm the one I always think of is Genesis, you know, Genesis three when um, the the Lord comes down, and you know to to Adam and Eve. It, the Jewish Targum say the word of the Lord came down. The the Memra in Aramaic, um, and so uh, you know I wonder if in Exodus three there's a there's an Aramaic Targum that mentions the 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 word of the Lord appearing in that bush. I, I don't know if I've ever looked at that. Well, the good thing is that regardless, it does, this is it's uh, not just a... anecdotal, but it's anecdotal. But um, this is etymology online. I've never looked up verb before, but verb is a late 14th century English word from an old French word verbe, which means a word or word of God or saying or part of speech. And it's directly from the Latin verbum verb. Interesting. So verb and verbum come from the same thing however the french word verbe if i'm pronouncing that right actually means a word so i'm guessing that that's probably what's going on with the spanish it, it, as well it sounds it sounds like it's got a closer connection to verbiage mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. verbiage that's a inter very interesting question Rudy. Yeah. anyway so matt um <laughs> i don't we could be here all you night. did write a whole book that. <laughs> talking about this one of our favorite subjects we did write a whole book I, but I don't want this to go super long because this is a whole, you know, series of shows in itself. But we have a chapter on the angel, a chapter on the angel in the divine council. Now, <clears throat> I think some of the people listening to my show here will know what, exactly what the divine council is. And I think others will be like, what in the world is that? So <clears throat> let's first describe a very, the divine a very important point in, and in, then, in the in the uh, in the topic of the of the watchers as well, by the way, as we, as we dive into in the, in the documentary. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, so let's define, kind of describe the divine council, and then why does why does this matter to who the angel? You want me to answer that? Is? I do because <laughs> I answer it all the time, and I'm curious what your answer would be. <laughs> yeah. So, the divine council. Uh, if I can describe it quickly, is the idea that in the heavenly realm, God also works through created beings. Um, you know, we think about God on the earth with human beings. He carries his gospel to the ends of the world through human beings. We, he has a task for us to do in, in this world. He, he chooses to use created beings. Well, in the, in the supernatural realm, there's evidence in the Bible that God also uses created beings. He works through angelic beings. And there's places in the Old Testament that picture God as sitting on a council. Now, you know, we also believe that God is sovereign. He's, he's uh, you know, he, he's ultimately, you know, knows what he's doing, but he's choosing to use the agency of, of beings and and in that realm, then there's a council of beings. There's a place like, with um, I think it's in Second Kings, um, where he uh, he you know there is given a vision. Or, you know the the prophet Micaiah describes a vision right. of God. First in Kings twenty two. Yep. Was that First Kings twenty two? Sorry, First Kings twenty two. Micaiah describes a vision of God in the divine council, asking the angels, uh, who's going to take care of Ahab for me? Um, you know, I, I want Ahab gone. And, uh, and a being comes forward and says, well, I'll be a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets. And God says, okay, well, go ahead and go, go do that. <laughs> and that will, lead, that will lead to Ahab's downfall. And this, this is Micaiah, who's speaking as a real prophet, saying, this is what, what I've seen in the heavenly realm, God working through uh, created agents. That's the idea of of the divine council. Um, and you you can add to that saying there's evidence that that members of that council have been given rule over parts of the world. You know that there are you know there are supernatural beings that have been given power over geographic regions in the world, or, or were at one point. Uh, before Jesus reclaimed all the nations for himself, at one point had authority over geographic regions of the world, and uh, and and abused that that authority, abused that power. Um, that starts to make people really uncomfortable, but it's there in the Bible, and uh, we we have to we have to do God. I think there's a danger we can go sometimes go too far in trying to say too much. God doesn't tell us everything about that world. But he tells us some things about that world that he wants us to know. I'm curious why you think, um, as you've thought about this, as I know you have, why do you suppose this makes people uncomfortable? I think people are still affected by the Enlightenment, even Christians. You know, we like to think of God, but we don't like to think of other supernatural beings. That seems weirdly superstitious. Um, and, uh, 
you know, it freaks, freaks people out. You know, it's kind of like I, I grew up in the generation where Frank Peretti was really popular, you know, right. back in the totally. 80s and 90s. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, you know, do we, are we supposed to look for, you know, the, the devil behind every every shadow? And, um, you know, it just freaks people out. Um, and it's well, some people kind of re, they react to it saying, are you you're suggesting that that God can't just do things? And, uh, you know, well, he can, but God chooses to work through created agents. Why would we be surprised if he does that in the heavenly realm in the same way as the earthly realm? Yeah. You know, I got I to gotta tell you, I got to tell you a funny story that kind of touches on that. Um, when we were working on our, on our film on Angels and Giants, I interviewed a, um, a professor in Cairo and, um, and he spoke on, he spoke on the, on the sons of God, on the, 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 uh, Ben Elohim. But one of the things that I, when I posed a question to him, um, I said, you know, Christians oftentimes think about when they picture heaven, they by and large just think, you know, God, Jesus, and the angels, you know, God, Jesus, the Holy, the Trinity and, and the angels. But, and I, and I said, this is me saying to him, I said, but, but if you really start to look at it, like for what it is, for what the Bible talks about, it's it's almost and I use the word I said there's like it's like there is this civilization in heaven there's this there's there's you know inhabitants of heaven <clears throat> and he and he shook his head and you know just and he's a good guy really good I'm not I'm not making fun of him but he said oh you Americans he goes you know you civilization you know that's you know that's that's that that's 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 the wrong word you know you Americans and your civilization you know so we roll tape and I post the question to him you know. And so he started talking about, you know, I said, how is heaven? That was my question. What is heaven populated by? Like, who are the inhabitants of heaven? You tell me, you know. So he said, well, you know, they, you know, there's, there's definitely, obviously, you know, God. And, you know, he goes, there's, there's ranks. There's, you know, there's, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's a council. And, and he says, I, I don't think he needs bodyguards, but I'm, I'm sure there are, there are guards, you know. And, and he goes, I mean, he goes, I guess you could call it a civilization. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he totally caved, you know. So, but yeah, no, I, that's funny. I'm, I'm, I'm totally with you. It's, it's funny. Um, and to be honest with you, and I, it's, it's like there's, there's structures in absolutely. heaven. Like that, that's mind-boggling to, to me. I remember when I first thought that I was like, I'd never thought about that before. But when, when God tells Abr, you know, tells. Uh, you know, David to build the temple or Solomon to build the temple after the pattern or Moses to build the tabernacle after the pattern that I show you. Well, what pattern is it? Well, it's a pattern of a heavenly temple. You know, Jesus, you know, Hebrews tells us goes to a heavenly temple. Uh, and you could think of that as, well, that's just symbolic language. I think it's implying, no, it's real language. There's a structure. And whatever that means in the heavenly realm, we have no idea. But there's architecture there. No, absolutely. Yeah, you and I, you and I talk about this um, poof theory, and it fits right into this. It's almost like people have this idea that the spiritual realm doesn't really exist after all. It's not actually a literal place. It's not. It, I mean, and by literal, I mean it doesn't exist. And so uh, we we've run into many many of our friends who are like. Yeah, I mean, the angel of the Lord, when he's here, he's here. It's kind of like a husk or a shell or something that he has. But when he's gone, he's gone. Poof. He doesn't exist. <laughs> he poofs in and out of existence. And I'm kind of like, well, so is it the same personality that poofs in and out of existence? The same, like, 
what's going on here? And so, you know, we, we kind of had to address that. And I know, I know you like to talk about the poof theory a lot, Matt. <laughs> yeah. I, well, you know, it, it, that, that starts to get into theological areas that people get really jittery, you know, because it could sound like you're, some people have said, I've heard people say, well, that begins to undermine the uniqueness of the incarnation. Are you saying that, that Christ took on uh, a permanent angelic form? Um, and I immediately want to play, well, well, I don't even know what an angelic form is. Do you, uh, you know, um, we, we don't know what we're talking about, but we know that, that Yahweh interacted with supernatural beings in the supernatural realm. I would argue that the sun interacted with supernatural beings in the supernatural realm. Did he poof out of existence in the supernatural realm and poof back into the eternity of God? Why does um, Genesis use the language with Jacob that Yahweh came down and then Yahweh went back up? You know, is he is he just poofing out of existence or is he going to a place? Um, I don't think we we can definitively say what it is, but we I don't I think it's a problem when we when we don't recognize there are, there's there has to be theophany in heaven. Um, Some kind of manifestation of God is what you mean by theophany. God working in His creation in time in space. We don't even know if time works the same way in the heavenly realm. But we know there has to be time. There has to be sequence. Some kind of sequence, um, yeah. And, and so if God's going to interact with angelic beings and uh, commission them to take care of things, that implies heavenly theophanies. You know, Doug, I, I spoke, um, and I, I don't know if you're familiar with him, Matt, but um, with Putty Putman, Robert Putman. Um, but we, we, we did a, I can't remember if it made it onto the film or not. I definitely have the footage where we talked about the physical um, we, a little bit about the physical properties of the spiritual realm, you know, how, you know, it's in the same way that we have gravity, you know, and, you know, solid objects blocking light and that kind of stuff, is that the spiritual realm has its own set of actual physical properties as well. And so it seems to me that that one thing that happened, go ahead, go ahead, Matt. I was going to say, it's, it's hard to use the word physical because... Um, we don't have any other word for it, but it, it's it's but in a, traits, it's got to be some type of analogy. Yeah, but traits, you yeah. know, traits. You're right. You're right. It's probably there is a wrong word, but 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 you know what I'm saying. But we don't have a we don't have a better exactly, word. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So in the same way that we have, you know, our, our 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 physical laws, the spiritual realm has its own set of laws as well. Or you know, um, and and so so I feel like going back to the poof theory, you know, we have examples. And I know it, we're not talking about Jesus at this point, but we have examples of the angels eating, you know, the, the story of Lot. And, and they're, they're, they're eating yep. with them. And we know that they're angels. We know for sure that they're angels. So one thing that, that, that I find really interesting is that it, it seemed like in the old, in the days of Abraham, in the days of, you know, yeah, like that far back, that there was a lot more poofing going in and out of the supernatural realm happening like you know god would appear to to, jo to he spoke he appeared to job he appeared to to uh to uh to, to abraham and and so there was there was a lot of this 
crossing of dimensions, crossing uh, into back and forth into the spiritual realm. And, and obviously we see it again after the resurrection, you know, that for 40 days they kept seeing him. Um, so it's, it's almost more like, it's almost more like as time has gone on and we've gone into the into this side of of the cross into you know to the age of grace that there's a lot less of that maybe so that there's more faith exercised you know um but but it's just it's and if and if it's happening i mean obviously we know that 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 crossing between realms is still happening in the supernatural realm from the dark side of the supernatural realm um and and obviously you know there are people that still talk about angels appearing and whatnot but that, i think that's interesting that the the whole poof theory it's just it's 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 not it's not a seizing of existence by any means yeah. you think about manna the manna in the yeah, wilderness it's called the, the bread of heaven it's also called the bread of angels uh-huh. now now that could be just hyperbolic language or it could be real, like that. I don't, we don't even know what that means. I mean, they had it's lambus yeah. bread. <laughs> <laughs> well, it had it yeah. had traits. It had very specific traits. You know, uh, if if you if you collected it on the Sabbath, it rotted. You know, so um, it was on the Sabbath, right? Yeah. Or or if you stocked up yeah. on it, if yeah. you stocked on it, it would it would rot. So no, absolutely, that's a very good point. You know, you you think about Jacob's ladder, you know, and there's some type of my some type of transmigration that's happening in going from the heavenly realm to the earthly realm and and is it that they do they take on properties when they transmigrate even the bread of heaven does it take on properties that wouldn't have been there otherwise but then does that mean that there's no property in heaven or we just don't know what it is right exactly i think i think we don't, I we don't think understand it's it the, it's the latter yep yeah we just we, don't understand don't, it i mean we don't have a concept for it yep exactly but there's something of there's some substance that 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 has to be real. Uh, there's a place. There's a substance to to heaven, and that's where you get, you know. There's there's architecture. There's there's um, realms in heaven. There's higher realms. There's languages in heaven. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've, I mean, I've heard I've heard um, some really interesting testimonies of people who who have had. Remember, guys, I am a I am a reluctant charismatic, but I am a charismatic. <laughs> so, <laughs> I've heard, you know, testimonies of visions of, of people who who say that in, that in heaven we're, we that what we see with our human eyes the the color pers uh, the color spectrum that we see pales in comparison to the things that we'll see in heaven, and it's biblical. I mean, the Bible says that no no eye has seen and no ears have heard. You know, so I take that at I take that at face value. As a cessationist who refuses to wear a seatbelt, um, meaning amazing, dangerous things could happen at all times if God wants exactly. to do them. So that's awesome. I have to remember uh, that. Uh, so, Rudy, what you just kind of were talking about there a minute ago is a really nice transition to one of the last things I want to talk about, which is. It's not the last thing, but it's one of them, which is Christ as the angel in the New Testament. This is a topic that does not get a lot of playtime. We wanted to take our book from Genesis through Revelation, not just Genesis through Malachi. So, Matt, <clears throat> take us through just a couple of ideas of the angel in the New Testament. Does this destroy um, the incarnation? Does this um, does this mean that somehow there's there's 
two presences of the second person, one as an angel, one as the as a human. Does the you know what what are we to make of an idea? First of all, even is there an idea of Christ as the angel? And if so, what are we to think about that? You could write a whole book on that question from the New Testament perspective. Um, so I I think about this in so there's I, I get asked the question: Does Jesus get called the angel in the New Testament? Um, and the answer is, he may only be, get, get called an angel twice, maybe three times. Um, so there's, um, and I'm going to draw a blank on them. Maybe, Doug, you can help me remember. I think one um, of them was in, Revelation 10. Well, that was the third one, which I think <clears throat> I was saying that the third one is is if you interpret Revelation 10, which is a vision of an angel that has divine qualities, and when you connect it to Revelation 1 and 2, you say, you know, there are interpreters who deny that that's Jesus, and then there are many interpreters who say that it is Jesus. That would be a one that's, that's explicitly making the connection. There's a verse in Galatians 4 uh, that, that mentions um, Jesus, potent, potentially saying Jesus is an angel. I forget what the third one is. Um, so people say, well, if, he's, if that's only three times and each of the times is kind of sort of vague why doesn't the new testament call you know jesus an angel um and i i think so that leads to the second second part of the answer is that uh in the new testament era there was a problem with angelic speculation um there was there's a lot of kind of uh jewish uh uh, uh, I don't know, J Jewish sensationalism. There was a lot of Gnosticism, like Sam Samaritan Gnosticism, that went into a lot of angelic speculation. And so by that time, the term angel had probably taken on a, a connotation of a specific created being. And the New Testament writers definitely wanted to make the connection to Jesus as the divine angel in the Old Testament, but they didn't want to want to make the connection of Jesus being a created angel. And so they, they tend to shy away from that term, but they start to apply all the other titles associated with the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament to Jesus. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the one that I think is probably the most relevant because people will bring it up as an argument against it is Hebrews chapter one. Um, because in Hebrews one, the writer of Hebrews is arguing that Jesus is greater than the angels. And he's very important, very important for the writer to say, you know, to which of the angels did God ever say this? And so people say, well, that means that Jesus can't be the angel of the Lord. And I said, well, when you get into the details of Hebrews 1 and understand what he's actually saying, that's not the argument. So I don't know if we want to go into this just briefly. Sure, go for um, it. Okay. So in, in Hebrews 1, he begins um, talking about how in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, through whom he created the world. So he's been there all along. He is the radiance of the glory of God. There's that word glory. And the exact, exact imprint of his nature, the word nature, he upholds the universe by the word 
of his power. So you get word and power there. And power both, yep. After making purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand mm-hmm. of the majesty on high. Another one of the terms. <laughs> Another one of the terms. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So now you get name um, going on there and angel going on there. So you get all of these, in, in just in those, those few verses, you get name, power, word, glory, right hand, all of these titles that when you go back and you look in the details in the Old Testament, they're associated with the angel, the divine angel of the Lord. And then Hebrews starts to go through Old Testament verses. Um, For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, Psalm 2. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Uh, and then and he goes through seven different references to the Old Testament. And you realize the seven different references to the Old Testament had an interpretive history behind them. They were in Jewish interpretive history. They were all associated as two powers texts, meaning texts that the Jews saw as potentially mentioning two powers in heaven or two Yahwehs. And the writer of Hebrews is going through these known texts and saying, this cannot just be a created angel. He's been there all along. He's mentioned in the Old Testament, but he's higher than the angels. Uh, he, he's, he has the very nature of God himself. Um, and uh, so see, look, looking the, in that depth to it, Hebrews is making those connections to Jesus in the Old Testament as, as the angel of the Lord. So then you go through those titles name, glory, word, right hand, power, um, and and you start going, so where do these appear in the New Testament? And they're all titles given to to Jesus. John Mm -hmm. 17, I have revealed your name to the people you gave me out of the world. If you're a a Jew and you're familiar with Exodus 3 and the angel who reveals God's name, you can't draw any other conclusion. That was great, Matt. I mean, that was just an excellent take on Hebrews 1 that's so misunderstood. You know, it's basically the rhetorical questions. To which of the angels? Well, to this one. (laughs) The angel of the Lord. That's which one. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know if we want to do this or not. Um, We've talked a little bit about the historical theology. And I think for me, just the, the point of that, section is to just really reinforce for people that this is not a novel interpretation. In fact, this is the this is the history of Christian interpretation going back to the very beginning. And um, just, you know, if anybody gets the book, don't skip over that section of the book because we feel like it's really, really important just in substantiating the arguments that we're making. So maybe I'll just move to the theological part and then we'll have the fun thing at the end here. Um, which is kind of theological, too. Um, but as you think about theological things that really are important for the angel, are there any that come to your mind that you would like for people to, to hear, to think about why, why this might matter? We've talked about some. You know, we've talked about the poof theory a little bit, which I think we brought up in that, in that section, and, and uh, kind of various other things, uh, maybe off the cuff or whatever, but we haven't really 
delve deeply. You, you know, if you don't have anything, that's fine. But you know, the the only thing I I would say is, um, you, let's go back to Voss. You know, Voss says that the angel of the Lord is the the most important way that God reveals Himself in you know to the patriarchs in the you know in the early chapters. And Voss has some really amazing stuff that he says about the angel. But I was recently reading Voss's biblical theology, and there's there's a lot of stuff in there that he doesn't get, in my opinion. Mm. Meaning he he gets the main outline, but he doesn't get the details. Um, and and he starts one of the things he says is that uh, none of this should be taken to mean that that the that the Trinity was was really revealed until the New Testament. Uh, meaning, meaning he thinks we should we should really only understand the Trinity to be to be revealed in the New Testament. Well, I agree that the full revelation of the Trinity really becomes clear in the New Testament. But I would say the more you look into it, the more you realize, no, the Trinity was revealed in the Old Testament. And that the persons, it's not just that God worked in his essential oneness in the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, he works through his persons. No, God was working through his persons in the Old Testament. And uh, there's, there's aspects of what's going on that, um, that are, are really important to, to work through. And I don't know that we, we know the, the systematic theology implications of it, but when, when people are talking about the Trinity and the economic... Uh, the economic trinity, the trinity revealed in space and time working in this world. It's not just through the incarnation that the persons of the trinity are working. It's in the Old Testament that there's, a, there's an angel, there's a, there's a Yahweh sent from Yahweh. Um, and if he's sent, there's, a, there's, an, a, there's an economy, there's something working out, uh, happening. Um, and... Uh, you know, I don't. I don't know that. That's um, that needs to be more part of, of people's conception, and, and the, they're, they're, people are just missing it. They're missing the implications of this from the Old Testament. They're just assuming it's not there, when it is there. Um, going back to the divine council thing, the other aspect of it that I don't. I think is suggested. You like you go to the to the. You know, Deuteronomy 32 worldview uh, kind of thing, where you know a lot of the uh, you know stuff from Heiser gets into the, the Deuteronomy 32 worldview, and in Deuteronomy 32 you have the Most High um, uh, dividing the nations according to the number of the sons of God, and then Yahweh taking Israel as His inheritance. Well, if we're reading this the right way, there's a potential distinction being made there between the Most High and Yahweh. And Yahweh. Mm -hmm. um, that the Most High is, is God the Father, and that the Yahweh claiming Israel for himself in the Old Testament is God the Son, and that there's implications of that in the divine council, meaning the Son is working among the other supernatural beings in the Old Testament. And then you throw in like Psalm 82, and that's a whole other discussion, where 
the psalm, you know, the psalmist says, Arise, O, o, o Yahweh, you know, judge the nations, for you shall inherit all the earth. You're going to re-inherit all the nations. The nations that have been given over to these other beings, you will now reclaim for yourself. There's a, there's a, a story with, that where that the redemptive story on a supernatural realm has not been explore, explored theologically. Absolutely. Yeah. In the ways that I think and guys, I think also, if I'm not mistaken, and this is kind of the charismatic again, it's going to talk about the Holy Spirit, you know, but, but in the, um, I believe it's in the, in the, in the second, I think it's the second book of Samuel's, of Samuel, where, where the Bible specifically talks about the spirit descending and, um, and causing uh, men to prophesy and, and specifically Saul, King Saul, where it became almost a cliche yeah. Uh, look at Saul prophesying too among the prophets, you know. Um, so, and I, I simply say that just to say I, I think I think if we look, yeah, we definitely would see that the, the the Trinity was operating within their specific roles as we've come to understand them in the new in the New Testament. In in the Old Testament, we just kind of have to look a little a little harder, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I mean, Matt's been bugging me, and we will do this at some point in time, God willing, um, to write a second volume, uh, companion volume, which is basically the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, looking at it through these very kinds of lenses. And we think that there's enough material there to probably go quite a ways um, deeper than what a lot of people have done in the past. All right, final final question. Um I get these asked a lot to me, and I know my answer, and you know my answer. The, the only question is, have you come over to the light side or are you still on the dark side? <laughs> and the question is, Melchizedek and Michael. We have a, uh, we have a little um, appendix where we kind of go through uh, reasons why Melchizedek and Michael might be the angel and why they might not. Um, so have you had any recent thoughts about this? Do you get people asking you about uh, Yeah, I, get, about I occasionally get much? asked that. Um, so right now, my stance is I don't think Melchizedek is. I think Michael might be. But I'm, but I'm not completely decided. Okay. Um, so Mike, my... Why do you think people might... Why do you think people might... Uh, get um, turned off, especially by the Michael one um, in today's a day and age. What, why would they go, man, I, I don't, you know, saying Michael's is well, Christ, I, that, the, that, the two main reasons would be um, number one, Jehovah's witnesses identify Michael as Christ. That freaks a bunch of people out. They don't realize that, that there's been a lot of other Christians in history, <laughs> like Orthodox Christians in history who made that identification. They just know the, Jehovah's Witness side of it and say, oh, well, you know, that can't be right. Um, and then the other side is uh, Revelation 12. Um, people wrestle with how can, how can Michael be Christ in Revelation 12 if Christ is the child that's born? And, you know, working exegetically to, through that, you know, that's, that's the one verse that to me, I'm not quite sure how that fits together. I can figure out ways it might, but I'm not, I'm not sure on that one. Um, yeah. Sure. My current yeah. view on Melchizedek is that he was the priest of the heavenly temple, the high priest of the heavenly temple. 
He was an meaning I think he was a supernatural what being who that? was the high priest of the heavenly temple. Yes. So a created being though. Yes. As opposed to the angel of the Lord. Interesting. I don't I don't know that I've run across that idea before. I'm I'm really curious about it. Now what what leads you to believe that? Cuz that's I, yeah, I've not heard that either ever. I've definitely made heard the case made that for it being Christ for sure, but not but but, well, that, but I'm not um, to you. I I preached through Hebrews several years ago. Uh, there's some things I would do differently about it, but there there's verses in Hebrews that talk about him as a type of Melchizedek, but not a substance of Melchizedek. And then I think the Hebrews was actually written to a group of Levitical Christians, uh, meaning they were, you know, they they were a group mm -hmm. of Levites who'd been converted. And there's a Jewish tradition that Melchizedek was a, a an angelic being who was the high priest of the heavenly temple. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, that is fair enough. That's that's a good answer. Got any more questions there, Rudy? No, this is very cool. Very, very cool, very eye-opening in, in many ways. You know, like I said before, this is, a, this is a topic that I can talk about forever. I know Matt can talk about it forever, but it's not just because we like to talk about it. It's because we really do think that this is just about as important of a topic as you can possibly uh, begin to think about thinking about. Absolutely. It's really that important. I mean, you, when, you're dealing with, when you're dealing with the person of our Savior, um, how can there be anything more important to do than to try and think as much about him as you can? It, it, it not only enlightens you for Old Testament things, but that shed, shed, sheds light itself on the things that he did in the New Testament. Because when you start connecting the dots between um, these passages, go going back and forth between the Testaments, all of a sudden you, you start realizing that Jesus is doing things I never even yeah. begin to imagine that he was doing. And it's just, a, it's just it's such a wonderful thing. It's um, every time I, I, you know, I really go deep on the subject, I just want to worship God because- um, Can I, I, can I throw can in one, one last thing? Um, you know, several years ago, there was a, Go for a pretty well-known preacher um, who made a, a comment that got a lot of, uh, went viral about Christians need to unhitch from the Old Testament. Uh, you, you, if you guys remember that, that story. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you I know, did. basically saying we, we don't oh, need yeah. to worry about the Old Testament. Oh, yeah. um, I, I was recently talking to someone about Luke 24 and the disciples on the road to Emmaus after Jesus's resurrection and Jesus appears to them, but he doesn't let them recognize him. And as they're talking on the road, he says, Oh, you slow of heart, you know, hard of heart and slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ would suffer these things? And then it says in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them and all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And, and what's implied is that the, the reason they were kept from recognizing him had something to do with their spiritual state, that there was a hardness of heart and a failure to believe what they should have understood from the Old Testament. 
and then it's and then it's you know they they go into the, the the house together and their eyes are open through the eating of the bread and Jesus is taken away from their sight and they say you know did not our hearts burn within us as he talked to us on the road as he opened to us the scriptures it's as the scriptures were open to them that their hearts began to burn and they were made ready for Jesus to be revealed to them and i think it, it's incredibly compelling to realize Jesus wanted his disciples to see him in the Old Testament. And if they didn't, they were hard of heart. And they they were kept from really understanding what he was doing and why he did what he did until they saw it in the Old Testament first. If Jesus wants that of them, he intends us to want the same thing. Absolutely. Yes. 100%. Absolutely. Very well said. Very well said. Matt, is there anything that you're up to these days? Um, you want to share with folks? Uh, we talked a little bit about your record. Um, you, you said you haven't started I have a bunch of songs. Yet, if, but, if I can get um, to it this year, I hope to re- record. Um, I, I have friends who have a studio. They, they've offered to help me. I just got to find the time to do it. And um, I have a few writing projects that I uh, I want to I want to do take some things I've done and, and put together in a book, and then I. I, I, at some point, I want to work on the book Doug just mentioned. I love that to see that as like the next big project is to take take the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament and work through it. That's really cool. That's very very cool. I look forward to both. Do you know who uh, Do you know who Rick Beato is? Either of you guys? <laughs> Hello. Rick Beato is this YouTube of guy. Course. And um, it, music music guru, man. Huh. I think he'd really like his channel, at least some parts of it, Matt. Um, but it came across as the recent upload today, and he was talking about um, kind of the demise of rock and roll. Yeah. <clears throat> and he, he laid it squarely at the feet of um, Bill Clinton and the uh, Federal Communications <laughs> Act in 1996, yeah. which I thought was super interesting. Yeah. And... Um, the reason I th- I'm thinking about this is because they were talking in this video about how the average price of cutting a record in the late 90s, $250,000 to cut a record in a studio. Wow. <laughs> yeah. In the 90s? In the late 90s, wow. yeah. yeah. He said that they were talking about how that's when the greed and the corruption really, it really uh, sank into the industry. And it was because of this uh, consolidation of all this power that that Bill Clinton's act allowed them to have is really interesting. So hopefully your record won't no, cost it, it, um, that it, much. It's <laughs> expensive and I do want to pay my pay my friends, but it's not anywhere close to that now. In fact, it's, it's gone the complete opposite way. The pro, Like my friends who run the studio say, everybody thinks that, you know, because they have GarageBand on their computer that they can get away with, with stuff and just do it on their own. Nobody right, wants exactly. to pay anything. So. <laughs> right. Exactly. The, yeah, they they were talking about that too. It's a totally different world now than it was in the late. Well, and the problem the problem is that with the with the advent of software and it being so good, um, you can do a lot of. Back then, you uh, depending on the band, depending on the act, you got a lot yeah. of your pre production done in the studio, you know, and the clock the clock was ticking, of course, um, and then a lot of the a lot of the the post the editing the post production was also done in the studio. Well, now. You can do a ton of your of your pre-production quality pre-production at home on your laptop, and same same with the post, same with the editing. So there's all kinds mm-hmm. of ways to save money now, 
But man, there is still no difference. There, there is a difference going into a, a real studio with real engineers, with real speakers, and 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 the people who know what they're man, doing can really bring, bring it out with a sound that you can't Absolutely. get otherwise. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Well, Matt, tell us uh, just a, a little bit about your church, where it's at, how people can, um, you know, maybe get to it if they want to do that, um, your website, anything like that. Sure. Uh, the church is Faith Reformed Baptist Church in Media, Pennsylvania. We're a western suburb of Philadelphia, about 15 minutes from, from Center City. Um, our church website is faithchurchpa.org. Uh, it's a pretty cruddy Rebs website that hasn't been updated in about 11 years. We, we are working on a new one. Um, Kennecott would not be happy at you for saying that. Yeah, it's 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 pretty pretty bad. Um, but our church has been growing. You know, we're we're a small church, but we're a church of around 200 uh, uh, people. Um, so, uh, really great community. Uh, been here for 20 years i love our church so yeah you've been there you and i have kind of outlasted the average by quite a bit <laughs> yeah at, at a church yeah. I and mean, i've heard numbers as low as 18 months that, that pastors are averaging in churches now so um i'm in a i'm in a, a little pastors uh a couple of pastors local pastors fraternals and um you know there's guys who are older than me but they've only been in their church for like five or so like i'm I'm the longest tenured pastor in our area, um, and I think that's, I'm not, not that old, guys. <laughs> I know, right? right? It makes you feel it, though. Yeah. Really, are we going to upload this to uh, YouTube, or, or what? Could we, we, were, we wanted to go live with this, but I don't think that that ended up happening, did it? No. It didn't go live, but we I, I, there's going to be some editing involved, which which, I, which which is what I'm what I'm trying to minimize. But uh, but yeah, no, we'll definitely have to do the editing. But it'll be it'll be on YouTube probably early next week. I would probably say probably Monday. Yeah, or we're trying to figure out different platforms and yeah. which will work best with the format that we want. Yeah. So if it goes on YouTube, everyone, you know, as we're trying to grow the channel, do what you can to help us. Subscribe to it. Just let the algorithms know that we're here and that you're there and. And that would be great for you to do. And always remember that it's the glory of God to conceal things. I love this verse. And anytime we have a discussion like this, it really brings it out because it's the glory of kings to search things out. And that's exactly what, what we got to do tonight when talking about the angel of the Absolutely. Lord. So thanks a lot for being with us. Oh, it's fun. And swear uh, to smash the like and subscribe button. Don't forget that. Yeah, I mean, I kind of said that. Smash it, smash it, smash, smash it. Smash the like button. Um, make sure that you treat it like it's a Nephilim and go up to it and punch it as hard as you don't, can. Don't make me go get your daughter to say it in, in front of the, you know, in front of the screen like like only she can. Punch that like button like it's a Nephilim, <laughs> but make sure that you have really fast feet so you can run away. <laughs>